0: Welcome to In Your Area. In today's episode, we welcome back Lisa Statfoy, a partner and practicing lawyer at Field Law. Lisa's practice specialties include the areas of estate planning, estate administration, trusts, and intellectual property. Her many years of experience and knowledge really help us clear up some of the misconceptions associated with our topic today on the probate process, power of attorney, and enduring power of attorney relating to real estate. As these issues affect realtors and consumers alike, we are confident every listener will come away with some new valuable insights. We hope you enjoy. All right. Hello, everybody. We are joined today by Lisa Statfoy, partner for Field Law, and she is an expert in probate, wills, estates. Those types of issues, obviously a bit more of a somber issue today, but definitely so, so important because it's part of real estate, it's part of life, and we need to know how the probate process works, estate, and all of those things, especially as relates to real estate. So thank you for joining us today, Lisa.
1: It's a pleasure being here.
0: I would like to just start basically by an overview of the probate process. And of course, that's in layman's terms, that's where the courts have to sort out the estate of somebody who's passed away. So how all that relates to real estate, I would love to hear just a general overview for our listeners, just so we have sort of hit the high points. I understand it can be complex, but let's hit the high points for our listeners, just so we have a basic framework to work off of.
1: Absolutely. And one of the number one questions that I get asked by clients is, do I have to go to probate or do I have to probate a will? And many think that that's actually a legal requirement. It's not a legal requirement. Probate is proof of a will. So it's the court confirming that the will is a legally valid will, it's a last will, and that the person named as the executor has the due authority to act on behalf of the estate. So probate is not a legal requirement, but I'd have to say that in virtually every case, not in every case, but in virtually every case, because of concerns of liability by, for example, financial institutions, that it is being demanded nonetheless. Just to provide a brief overview of the probate process. It's an application process. So somebody like an estate lawyer like myself would prepare an application for probate if we have a will or administration if the deceased died intestate without a legally valid will. And it's that application is submitted to the surrogate court. The surrogate court reviews that application lets us know about any challenges that it might have or issues with the application itself. And if there are no issues or all of them are resolved, then we get issued a one-page document called a grant of probate or a grant of administration. That process is taking around three to four months right now from filing. So it's wise for Albertans to kind of get ahead of that process to move as quickly as possible to get that application in so that if there are delays, at least it's not undue and potentially problematic for the administration of the estate. It may be helpful for your members to know a couple of things. One is if the deceased was on title to property interest, including a mortgage interest, then probate is required. It is, it is, in fact, a legal requirement under those circumstances, which I'm guessing would be most of the time that your members are engaged. The second thing that's really important for your members to know is that in an urgent situation, I recently had one in my office where, sadly, my client passed away in the middle of a real estate transaction. And we were able to receive what's called a limited grant from the court, which is greatly abbreviated in terms of time, that the court will rush through a limited grant. It's limited in the sense that it's only giving the executor or administrator the authority to deal with the real property, to take care of all of that real estate transaction to ensure it can close on time. But that is a process that is potentially available to Albertans in a situation where, for example, the deceased dies in the middle of a real estate transaction that has a quick close
0: So as far as that goes, I I know the general consensus in the real estate industry is, you know, to figure out who the executor is and, you know, maybe get some of that documentation. So if if the person who passed away was the title holder and let's say one of our members wants to list that property, family called them, said, let's get the property on the market. Do you ever run into a situation where the will is solid, the executor is solid, doesn't seem to be any appearance of, you know, dispute based on what you just said? Is that something that would still likely have to go through probate? Is that what members should expect that at some point it's still going to have to probate?
1: If the deceased name appeared on title or if the deceased was a mortgage holder, then absolutely probate is required. And the reason for that is that the Land Titles Office will not take an Executor Administrator's instructions to transfer land or to discharge a mortgage, for example, or transfer over a mortgage interest to another party without that court document called a grant of probate or a grant of administration. So anytime the deceased is a a landowner, holds a real estate interest of any kind, probate is almost certainly going to be required under Alberta law. It's really a foundational question. So we often get Ask that question that you have, Brian, about, well, who has the legal right to sell the property? Can I accept a listing agreement? Who can sell that? Who can enter into this kind of agreement when somebody has passed away, when a title holder has passed away, for example? And the foundational question is, was there a legally valid will? That changes everything. So if if the deceased died with what appears to be a legally valid will, and very importantly, can we find the original signed document? A photocopy of a will cannot be admitted to probate, so we cannot do anything with a photocopy of a will. We have to have actually the wet signature document, and if those two things are present, so where the deceased owner died with a legally valid will And we know and have in our possession an original will, then probably your members don't have to be too, too cautious about doing something like entering into a listing agreement or entertaining the instructions of that named executor in that will. So that's sort of a default rule. There's obviously lots of exceptions to that in situations where it still might be a risk. But the reason for that is that the named executor in that will derives their authority from the will. So a of probate doesn't provide that executor with the authority. They already have that authority on death of the testator um, because there's a legally valid original executed will in existence. So if a realtor actually sees that original will, can see that the person they're engaging with is the named executor under that will, then probably they're okay to at least enter into a listing agreement with them. If there is no will or nobody knows where the original is, which is extremely common, I would caution your members against taking any instructions because it may be that the person that is wanting to enter into a listing agreement or that the member is engaged with has no legal authority to do so. And in fact, they wouldn't have the legal authority to do so because then a grant of administration is necessary for the courts to give somebody the legal authority to deal with the estate on the estate's behalf.
0: Yeah it sounds it sounds like a barrel of fish hooks to me it, it might be something where a member if they're not hundred percent sure they should be seeking legal legal advice as to the legal validity of who can actually sell. Now, I know realtor members are always concerned with timeline because all of our contracts, time is of the essence. There are always, you know, these, these very uh, specific times and dates that fall into listing contracts and purchase contracts. And you had touched on the idea that currently at the time of this podcast recording, it's, you know, the Alberta government or the Alberta courts are somewhere around three, to four months from start to finish for probate, which is a long timeline in the real estate world. So with that understanding, is there anything else that could sort of, you know, pop up or, or mess up the timeline as far as the, uh, the probate process goes? Is there something that could really, you know, throw a monkey wrench in there?
1: There's a number of things, of course, that can, that can pop up that can really cause problems for your members in terms of making sure that it closes on time. What I would say is in every case that the member should be encouraging the the executor or whoever is proposing to act as the administrator of the estate to get moving on that application process as soon as possible. That application process in itself, if it's done by a qualified lawyer, is going to assist in bubbling to the surface any potential issues with the family, with the will, with the property itself, etc. And all of those issues, if they bubble to the surface as soon as possible, can be dealt with potentially before we have a real issue with closing potentially. There's At least two issues that can certainly cause a problem. One is if there is no will, because then there is nobody with the legal authority to give anybody instructions about anything, even clearing up the property, entering into an agreement with the realtor, all of those things nobody has the legal authority to do without a legally valid will. So, in any circumstance where your members see that the title owner or the the owner of real estate does not have a legally valid will or we can't find the original, nobody has a clue where it's gone to, that should be a real alarm bell for the realtor that at least something needs to be done as soon as possible because nobody's going to have that authority until there's some kind of grant of probate or administration or perhaps even a limited grant. The other... Issues, and I can think of at least two others that, that really should cause some concerns for your members is where they can see on title that there is joint ownership between an adult child and the deceased. Anytime they see that situation, they should probably get in front of it too. There's a default rule at law that assets held in joint Tennessee pass by right of survivorship notionally, automatically, although there's nothing automatic about dealing with the land titles office, but notionally, automatically to the surviving joint tenant. But there's some important exceptions to that rule, and one of them is a situation where the joint owners are related by adult, child, and parent. So any time that your members see that situation, they should proceed with some caution. The exception to that rule means that without more, so unless there's an intention confirmed otherwise by the deceased, that that property is going to form part of the deceased parent's estate as a matter of presumption under law. So it can be, that presumption can be overcome by a statement of intention in a will, for example, or other kinds of confirmation that of what the true intention was. But in most cases, we don't see that. So your members have to be really careful when they see that kind of situation on title where we have joint ownership between a deceased parent and their adult child or children. And a qualified lawyer that practices an estate should really be engaged very soon in that process. The other situation is where we see minor children. If there's a minor child or children interested in the estate, then the public trustee will be involved as a matter of law. The public trustee has to consent to the disposition of that property, and it's a good idea, again, just to get them involved very early in the process so that they're not having to we're not having to get consent sort of at the last minute and that can certainly cause problems for closings.
0: Yeah, that's I those are things that oftentimes, you know, our listeners probably haven't even thought of and super, super important. Now I know that when you were talking about the ability to list, two things sort of popped into my own mind. It sounds like if It's reasonable to the realtor member and their broker that the property is able to sell, you know, in the end. There are, you know, they've spoken to legal counsel. Legal counsel says it it seems like it's okay to list. There's maybe a couple of things that should be considered as far as terms go, say in the listing agreement, a term stating that, you know, the probate process will be started immediately and the brokerage will be kept in the loop as to its ongoing completion and then if a you know probate hasn't completed and there's an offer to purchase on the table that comes in that's really should be a red flag for the listing agent to ensure there's a term in the contract ensuring that the seller is able to actually get a grant of probate so maybe a long condition where it's additional seller's condition something along the lines of you know that the, the seller is able to produce a grant of probate before they remove that additional seller's condition. Would you say that those are, are safe fence posts to put in place and still continue with the process of marketing and selling the property in, in line with, you know, probate process and, and this situation where the owner has deceased?
1: Yeah, I would definitely say that it's good practice to make sure that there's something in the contract itself that references that this is part of an estate, even where there is some understanding between the parties and specifically the purchaser that it is quote, a estate that's selling this property. It's amazing how often once it really comes down to the crunch and we don't have a grant of probate, et cetera, that they start to get cold feet and want to back away very quickly. So it's important right from the beginning, in my view, that all of the parties know that this is all conditional on a grant of probate or a grant of its administration being obtained, because we can't actually get transfer of the property until we do have a grant of probate or administration. So even though some other things can potentially be done, including potentially a tenancy at will or something like that, we actually can't give them registrable transfer of land until we have a grant of administration or a grant of probate. So it's helpful for all of the parties just to be alive to that right from the beginning and and understand that this is all waiting for that grant to issue from the circuit court and that there are some delays. One problem that we see quite often coming up is that the contract is made out in correct name. So it's not correct to say that the seller is the estate of John Doe. That is not the correct way. So if there's a will, it should, of course, be in the name of the executor or executors because they're the ones that have the legal authority. Again, if there is no will then that is a real red flag and a potential problem because then nobody has the legal authority to enter into that contract on behalf of the estate. Once that grant of administration does issue, though, even if it's a limited grant, then it should be in the name of the administrator of the estate in their personal name and quite often it'll be the personal name as administrator of the estate or personal name as executor of the estate, for example. So it's the actual human beings that are acting in the role of executor or potentially a trust company acting in the name of the executor that should be the ones that are the party on that contract.
0: Wow, that's that is great information. Throughout my career, I can't tell you how many times that's been a common practice on the top of a listing contract just to write the estate of, you know, Margaret Smith or whoever is the person who's deceased and just having the administrator or the executor sign all the documents, but all those documents being in the name of the deceased. And just for a point of clarity, You're saying that that's not the right way to do it. That's going to cause problems when it comes to the conveyancing because only the person who has the legal authority to sell is the one who should be on those documents named and signing. And the deceased, obviously no longer has that legal right because they're deceased. That, that's, th- just for point of clarity, that's right?
1: That's exactly right. And we do often see that these contracts are in the name of the deceased too, even after they, they've been entered into after somebody has passed away. Of course, nothing we can do if they die mid-transaction, but absolutely the deceased person should not be on that contract. A deceased party obviously cannot contract at law, so it should the deceased person should not be on title. Uh, just to talk a bit about why that is. In the probate process, once we get that grant of administration, that grant of probate, we will submit a transmission to the Land Titles Office that transmits title from the deceased name into the name of the named executor or administrator. And that transmission, once complete, will allow title to be in the name of the executor, and it'll actually say Jane Doe as executor of the estate of John Doe, for example. So when the transfer of land is prepared, transfer of land will say Jane Doe as executor for the estate of John Doe to whomever the purchaser is. So it just allows this nice, consistent transaction or chain of rights. If any of that chain is broken, then quite often we do have to get amendments, et cetera, to the contract in order to amend them and remedy some of these issues. And sometimes purchasers are are not real happy, especially if they're already starting to get cold feet in the transaction about these kinds of amendments and these kinds of changes.
0: That's incredible clarity that I think is really important for, for all of our listeners to understand. I wanted to circle back and just ask a question about something that you had touched on when it comes to joint ownership. Joint ownership is where, say, Ma and Pa are listed on the title together, or, say, Mother and Son, whatever the, the case may be. On the title, it should say, as joint tenants And you had already touched on the idea of the right of survivorship and some of the pitfalls that can come up with that. But if it doesn't say as joint tenants, is it assumed that it's as joint tenants?
1: It isn't. So those three magic words under Alberta law have to appear on title for you truly to hold as joint tenants on title. So for example, two names might appear or three names might appear on the the title to the property. It has to have that phrase as joint tenants in order for it to be a true joint ownership such that title will pass by right of survivorship to the joint tenants. Land titles office is, of course, very strict about this. And if just the names appear, but those magic words as joint tenants don't appear, it's seen as not held as joint tenants. So it won't pass by right of survivorship and, and very quickly and easily. Title will not transfer quickly and easily by right of survivorship at the land titles office. It's seen as a tenancy in common situation, even though both names appear. So in situations where members are seeing that two names appear, but it doesn't say as joint tenants, then they need to get ahead of that very, very quickly. If somebody's passed away, that title can't be remedied. We're going to need a grant of probate in order to deal with that situation, period, because we can't allege that there was some kind of error. If those that magic phrase does not appear on title, it will not pass by right of survivorship at the land titles office.
0: Wow, so so the default on land titles, if it doesn't say as joint tenants, the default understanding under the law is that all those names on the title are tenancy in common. That's exactly
1: uh-huh. right, and even that's true even if it doesn't designate proportion. So in the normal course, it should say as tenants in common, it should designate what the proportion Of ownership is in a tenants in common situation, but that's not typically the case. So if it doesn't say as joint tenants, then the land titles office position is that they did not hold as tenants in common and will not pass by right of survivorship.
0: Wow, that's interesting. So let's maybe just suppose hypothetically, what if we're not talking about a deceased? What if we're talking about somebody who has maybe lost mental capacity to make their own decisions and, and act in their own transaction, not because they've deceased, but because they no longer are capable of doing that because of illness or something else. Can can a member sell a property where where the seller is that person who has lost mental capacity and there's maybe a family member, a, a cousin, a, a, a child who's handling things for them? How how can members sort that situation out?
1: So that's a very problematic situation for your members, and any time they find themselves in that situation, they have to proceed with extreme caution. Uh, The reason is an incapable Albertan obviously cannot enter into any kind of contract in their own capacity and that would include a listing agreement, that would certainly include signing a transfer of land, etc. And one would assume that in a long-term marriage situation, for example, to 80-year-olds that have been married for a tremendously long time, that potentially that spouse of the incapable Albertan would be able to sign a transfer of land or make decisions in terms of listing and all sorts of things on behalf of their incapable spouse. That is not the case at law. There's only two doors under Alberta law. So even if you have a, are in a long-term marriage with the incapable Albertan, you do not have the authority at law to make their financial decisions for them. And that would include, of course, selling their property or entering into any other kind of arrangement. The only way that you can get the legal authority to make decisions for your incapable loved one is by either that... Incapable Alberton has created a legally valid enduring power of attorney or a trusteeship order has been granted by the court for that incapable Albertan. That's the only way that somebody under Alberta law can get the ability to make decisions of a financial nature, dealing with property on behalf of an incapable Albertan. Therefore, when your members encounter this situation where there's a title holder that has lost capacity, they have to proceed with caution. In many cases, there won't be a trusteeship order there. So what the court granting somebody the authority to make that incapable Albertan's decisions. If that's there, then they can they can take the, the named trustees' instructions to transfer land or to enter into listing agreements. When they don't have that, though, which would be the most common situation, then we need to see an enduring power of attorney. Enduring power of attorney is a, a document that a, an Albertan would prepare in their own right, and they would name somebody to make their decisions for them in the event of incapacity. They come in all shapes and sizes, and the authority that the attorney has under an enduring power of attorney depends on the provisions in that document itself. So your members would actually have to see a copy of that enduring power of attorney and review it to make sure that the named attorney has the legal authority to give them instructions or to transfer property, etc. And in many cases, neither of those things—neither a trusteeship order nor enduring power of attorney—is actually present in the transaction. Real hot button potential problem is, of course, dower. And even where we have a trusteeship order and even where we have an enduring power of attorney, so even when the Albertan has done everything right. It can still mean that the court is actually going to have to provide the dower consent because an attorney and a trustee cannot provide a dower consent on behalf of the incapable Albertan. The court is the only one that can do that. So it's an, a narrow kind of a situation that comes up. It doesn't come up all of the time, where we have these dower issues arising an incapable Albertan. But when it does come up, it's a big problem. And of course, it's not, we can't get in front of the court to get dower consent immediately. So all of these issues we have to get in front of in order for the closing to go smoothly.
0: So again, legal counsel is crucial, you know, as sort of the first gate that our members, realtor members, should be considering at the point of listing or offer to purchase, depending on, on the situation they need to be seeking some sort of a legal document specifically granting them the right to dispose of property.
1: That's exactly uh, and right. I'm
0: talking about the uh, the family member who is acting on behalf of the loved one who doesn't have capacity. They would need to provide us with a specific disposal right document that we could stick in the file. Is that right?
1: Yeah, absolutely right. And that would be the case even when you're dealing with two 80-year-olds in a long-term marriage. Mm-hmm. We would all understand that, presume, that... That spouse could make these decisions on behalf of their incapable spouse, and that's absolutely not the case. And so even in those kinds of seemingly straightforward situations or risk-free situations, we have to have a legal document in which the spouse is given the legal authority to act on behalf of their incapable spouse. And as I said, dower can become a real Issue in these situations, specific situations, and it is not just as simple as looking for those documents when it does end up coming up.
0: So, when we're considering enduring power of attorney, that prompts to my mind the idea of a traditional power of attorney, which would be a document that stands, you know, in as an authority of somebody who's not incapacitated, but maybe just either unable or unwilling to act on their own. Perhaps they're, you know, living in a foreign country and need to sell a property. We do see this quite frequently in real estate, where a power of attorney is produced in order to, you know, maybe by a child who's going to sell the parent's property. When it comes to acting with somebody who is listing with somebody who is a power of attorney for somebody else, is that power of attorney sort of all-encompassing? And when it comes to the documents, I guess it's a two-fold question, when it comes to the documents specifically, whose name goes on the title? Is it the power of attorney's name or the title holder's name?
1: That's an excellent question. So powers of attorney at law are only effective while the principal that's giving the instructions is able has capacity to give those instructions to the agent. So a traditional power of attorney that your members would often see or brokers see and we give them all the time, although we probably don't recognize them as such, become null and void on the incapacity of the principal, which is why enduring powers of attorney are called enduring powers of attorney because they're a special kind of power of attorney that continues notwithstanding incapacity and it actually has to have those words on it. So there isn't sort of a presumed enduring component to it. It actually has to have those words on the document itself. So a true enduring power of attorney, sometimes it actually comes into effect only on incapacity, but that's not always the case. Sometimes it has immediate effect as of signing, and there's all kinds of different enduring powers of attorney, as I said, but that is what your members need to see. So just a power of attorney in and of itself when they're dealing with an incapable Albertan that is a title holder, for example, is not going to... To be sufficient to provide that legal authority, they're going to need to make sure it's an enduring power of attorney because that power of attorney that they were granted comes null and void on that incapable Albertan's incapacity, hmm. where, where they were the ones that th- gave the power of attorney. In terms of how the document should be represented, that's also a really good question. So, the listing document, if we do have a legal enduring power of attorney and we know that that grants, the named attorney the power to act in those circumstances. It should be that named attorney's name and it should also have the words on it as attorney for and then have the incapable Alberton's name. So it's clear that they're acting in a representative capacity. If we're dealing with a trusteeship order, it should be the named trustee, personal name, as trustee for, and the name of the incapable title holder. That's how those names should be represented. How title looks is, is a bit different. Um Title will not represent that it is being held in a representative capacity. So even though the listing agreement and all other agreements should be and should absolutely be set out that way so that the purchaser, for example, is alive to where they're getting their legal authority to act on the incapable adult's behalf, title itself will actually only have the name of the attorney or the name of the trustee, and and there'll be nothing represented on title that indicates, in fact, that they're acting in a representative capacity as attorney or trustee, interestingly.
0: So I guess the, the really big takeaways, perhaps, when it comes to power of attorney and enduring power of attorney is that members should be seeking out a specific document that names uh, and it'll be dated, it'll have, you know, certain criteria and it and it should specifically state disposal of property. And then just following through the logic based on what you've said, a power of attorney is something that allows somebody to act on another person's behalf while they're still capable and they become the authority in the transaction in that case when that person who gave the power of attorney no longer is capable, they have to have an enduring power of attorney because the original power of attorney is no longer effective. That's
1: exactly right.
0: And then just to take that logic one step further, if the enduring power of attorney passes away during that course of the transaction, let's say, then the enduring power of attorney is no longer valid and it would default to the will going back to probate, bringing it sort of full circle in the discussion.
1: Only on death. So if that incapable Albertan passes away, then the grant of probate, et cetera, would become the relevant process because even an enduring power of attorney becomes null and void on the passing of the incapable Albertan. Quite often, enduring powers of attorney, though, have, have alternates named. So it'll say something like, I name... Jane Doe, but if they're unable to act or continue to act, then I name John Doe, I'm failing which. So if that named attorney became no longer able or willing to act, there's a possibility that that same enduring power of attorney could potentially be used, but a different person would be acting in that role.
0: This has been a very clarifying discussion. I I certainly know that this is going to be helpful for our listeners, our, our realtor members, and I would suggest even our broker members who are Ultimately, the ones who are clarifying through these files what documents are necessary and whether or not they have the legal right to represent the seller in these situations. Any final thoughts as far as probate, power of attorney, enduring power of attorney, any of these types of topics?
1: I, I would just leave your members with the final thought that it's a really good idea to get ahead of these issues. And so, any circumstances where they, that are not traditional, they have an incapable owner. They have a deceased owner. They have minor children involved in the transaction somehow that they really need to encourage their clients to get legal advice on a very timely basis. There's a lot of delays in this process now, especially because of COVID, but there were some delays for some other reasons before. And it it really is taking a very long time to sort out these issues, which is going to cause problems for the clients ultimately. Of course, clients poorly understand all of these issues. So really allow your members to add some value if they even have just some vague understanding about these issues so that they can recommend to their clients that they get contemporaneous legal advice to ensure that the process goes smoothly and it closes on time.
0: That is so helpful. Thank you for your time, Lisa. We really appreciate it and we know that our listeners will really appreciate it. Thanks so much. My pleasure. We would like to thank Lisa for helping us think through these important parts of the law in Alberta around probate, power of attorney, and enduring power of attorney. If you found this podcast helpful, be sure to share it with friends and colleagues who could also benefit from these very practical episodes. For additional real estate practice information, check out our blog called Practically Speaking, which can be found on our website, albertarealtor.ca. We look forward to seeing you again next time when we are in your area.